chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, raise your hand, and these fine fellows will get you a Bible. Raise your hand, they'll hand it to you. You're welcome to keep it if you don't have a Bible. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. So if you'd stand with me, we're going to pick up at James chapter 3, verse 1. James the Just is the author of this book. He is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Um, He is also a a deacon over the church in Jerusalem and one of the leaders. And uh, he's writing to a primarily Messianic Jewish congregation, but he is speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. And let's see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let uh, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt and fresh water. These things ought not to be so. Amen? If we just hear that, we can go home. But I don't think we did. These things ought not to be so. And thus, you will endure my preaching. Let us pray. And Lord, as I begin to speak of your word, I will be more strictly judged, as will my words be. Lord, I pray that we would put a bit in our mouth and a rudder on the ship of our life, That we would not spark a flame of destruction, but we would be as instruments of righteousness, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. That our words can offend, an offended brother is harder one than a fortified city. That, Lord, we communicate. And, and Lord, I I pray that you you would teach us the significance of the tongue. And that these ideas transform the world or destroy the world all by the tongue. And so God, speak to us now, we pray, that we would honor you as you declare these things ought not to be so, that our mouth is to be used for life. And so God, I pray that you would establish that and we ask that you would bless and we will give you the glory and the honor that you so richly deserve in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, have a seat. You know, they say that um, 
in communication, in all communication, it's broken down and, um, and you have this idea that, that 7% of our communication is uh, words, content. Communicating with words, content. And then 55% is nonverbal. And then another 38% is tonal or the tone that we take. So, so for example, you can, you can say, I'm going for a walk. You and your wife are arguing. I'm going for a walk. Now, I've communicated I'm going for a walk. That's the 7%. I'm going for a walk. That's the verbal communication, transmission of knowledge. I'm going for a walk. Now, the tonal, I'm going for a walk. That's communicating that you are bugging me, woman, and I'm out of here. Right? The tonal. It's different than, honey, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going for a walk. I'm, I'm, I'm done. So you see that, that tonal picture of our words. And then the nonverbal communication is when you slam the door on your way out. What are you saying there? You'll be lucky if I ever come back. And she's thinking, no, no, I won't be lucky. <laughs> Keep walking. <laughs> you know, you, you, you communicate and, and your, your communication, when it speaks of the tongue, it speaks of communication. It's not necessarily the tongue itself moving up and down on the roof and the floor of your mouth. It's this idea of communicating is what the scripture is, what James is declaring. It's this communication be one to another. You see, there, there's, your, your, your words are deceptive when you're saying uh, this idea, I'm going for a walk. And, and, and there's this tension that's created in the home. Now, if you were to look at your spouse and say, I am, am in, in, at a place where I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated. And I just want you to know, I'm going to go and cool down for a little bit and I'm going to go for a walk. You don't have to slam the door. You don't have to bark orders. You communicate it. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm a little tense right now. It's a lot of information and it's causing, and I just need to go between me and the Lord and sort this out and I'll come back. And that's communicating on its highest level. That's where you're not deceiving one another. That's where you're walking in harmony, where you're nonverbal and you're verbal and you're tonal are all matching together so that the person you're communicating with understands completely what you're saying. But, but this idea, and my wife just now was sitting here and she said, you've got that thing on your head. And I, it's this thing. And, and I, I do this. <laughs> I can't do it now. But I, it, it's, as I crinkle my head, she, she says, you look angry. I'm not angry. What would make you think that I'm angry? <laughs> it's like permanent. It's just attached. I don't know what to do with it. Uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, I can be communicating. She says, what, what's wrong? Why? Nothing's wrong. Why would you sigh so deeply? Okay, uh, sighing. Why did I sigh? You know, and there's there's something there. It betrays you, and 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 it's exactly what's going on. And and when the scripture says, you know, a lot of you, you think, you know, I I want to be a public speaker. I want to transmit thoughts. I want to move rooms. Well, you'll be more strictly judged. 
James begins by saying that you'll receive stricter judgment. I mean, standing up here and, and rightly dividing the word of truth, everything that I'm sharing is going to be observed and dissected. And not just what I'm saying, but you're going to observe my family, nonverbal communication, tonal qualities. You're going to dissect my wife. You're going to dissect my children. You're going to dissect my home. You're going to dissect the clothing I wear. You're going to dissect the ring that's on this finger thinking, why does he think he's so rich wearing a pinky ring? And some of you don't know the story behind it. You've already preached judge me so stop it but the idea is you will be more strictly judged because the words that you're sending out people receive them but they look at the messenger and and they don't like the word so they take the messenger and dissect the messenger and that's why people leave a church or they get so frustrated is because it's it they're, they're upset with the messenger when in reality that's the message that they're struggling with and, and the, the beauty of it is, is that when we're more strictly judged, he goes on to say, we all stumble in many things. I'm going to let you down. The messenger's always going to fail you. If you're, if you're going to a church because of the messenger instead of the message, you have issues. That, that is a cultic following. Don't do that. And every messenger will let you down. We all stumble in many things. And if anyone doesn't stumble in word, he's perfect. There's no man perfect. None. This is a room filled of, with losers. We don't, we're not perfect. Right? No? Amen. Amen. But he goes on to say, you need to bridle your tongue and then you bridle the whole body. He says, indeed, verse 3, he who puts a bit in horses' mouths that they may obey us and we turn, he turns the whole body. He goes on to say, look also at ships. They're, they're so large and they're driven by fierce winds, yet they're turned by very small rudders, the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member in both great things. What is, what, you have the ship's wheel and, and you have one pilot and he turns it and the ship moves. Big giant ship. My dad was a captain of Navy vessels. Uh, he, he, he would, you know, this is how it would work. One man would control it. Two degrees starboard, three degrees, you know, port. And, and, and this enormous behemoth of a vessel could be directed by one captain. And, and a, a rider on a horse, what is a, you know, they talk about blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The word meekness means strength under control. I, I've, I've gone out to, to the, your, your place and I've seen your horses. And Bob and Dee Wilson, they've got amazing uh, quarter horses that are just, they're, they're, they've got hind quarters that just are filled with muscles and these things are just beasts (laughs) and they're just rippling with muscles and you go out and you you see bob and here he is he's just taking this horse and leading it if that horse knew it would just tear him apart and that little bit in the mouth and the horse goes wherever bob wants it to go it just keeps going wherever (laughs) bob wants to be careful and that's what the bit does it's strength under control and what is it it's being guided by a master the ship is being guided by a pilot. What's God saying? Your mouth, as, as Jesus said in Luke, from the overflow of a man's heart comes his words. If your heart is owned by the Lord, your tongue is directed by God. That's the bit. You see, it's the words that are destructive. It's the words that are powerful. It's the words that, that absolutely transform a culture and a life. 
Jesus said in Luke 6.45, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So out of your heart, your mouth will betray you. Who is controlling your heart? Who is controlling your heart? Your mouth will betray you. Your mouth sets the direction. I, I, I was thinking about some of the greatest wordsmiths in history. Wordsmiths who have transformed history. Saved civilizations and destroyed civilizations. Out of their mouth. Simply their mouth. Saved civilizations, established life, and destroyed civilizations, and created death. All out of their mouth. October 29th, 1941. America hadn't entered the war yet. All of Europe had fallen. The last remaining vestige against the evil of Nazi Germany was England, a little island in the Atlantic waiting for the invasion of Nazi Germany, then all of Europe would be secured in the hands of a fascist nation. As six million Jews would be incinerated. As millions would die by a man who wrote Mein Kampf. A man who had the final solution and called Jews rats. His words had power and destroyed almost every Jew in Poland. We went through Yad Vashem and saw it's awful. You go to the Children's Holocaust Museum, it's awful. One man with his words destroyed a generation. But one man stood in opposition and by the power of words he changed the world. He was at a school called Harrow School. It was one that when he was a child he had known of or attended, and it was Winston Churchill when he visited Harrow School on October 29th to hear the traditional songs sung again. And he discovered that there was an additional verse that had been added to one of the songs, and it ran like this Not lest we praise in darker days the leader of our nation, and Churchill's name shall win acclaim from each new generation. For you have power and danger's hour, our freedom to defend, sir. Along the fight, we know that right will triumph in the end, sir. And then as he heard the children singing this song, he addressed the school in what is one of the most profound speeches that Churchill ever gave. And he said, almost a year has passed since I came down here at your school to the headmaster's kind invitation in order to cheer myself and cheer the hearts of a few of my friends by singing some of our own songs. The ten months that have passed have seen very terrible, catastrophic events in the world. Ups and downs, misfortunes, but anyone sitting here this afternoon, this October afternoon, not feel deeply thankful for what has happened in the time that has passed and for the very great improvement in the position of our country and of our home. They were fearful at any moment that Nazi Germany would invade. Why, when I was here last time, we were quite alone. Desperately alone. And we had been so for five or six months. We were poorly armed. We were so poorly armed. To, uh, we are not so poorly armed today. But then we were very poorly armed. We had the unmeasured menace of the enemy and their air attacks still beating upon us. And you yourselves had had experience of this attack. And I expect you're beginning to feel the Im- 
uh, feel impatient that there has been this long lull with nothing particular turning up. But we must learn to be equally good at what is short and sharp and what is long and tough. It is generally said that the British are often better at the last. They do not expect to move from crisis to crisis. They do not always expect that each day will bring up some noble chance of war. But when they very slowly make up their minds that the thing has to be done and the job put through and finished, then even if it takes months, if it takes years, they do it. Another lesson I think we, will, we may take, just throwing our minds back to our meeting here 10 months ago and now, is that appearances are often very deceptive. And as Kipling well says, we must meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. You cannot tell from appearance how things will go. Sometimes imagination makes things out far worse than they are, yet without imagination, not much can be done. Those people who are imaginative imaginative, see many more dangers than perhaps exist, certainly many more than will happen. But then they must also pray to be given that extra courage to carry this far-reaching imagination. But for everyone, surely, what we have gone through in this period, I am addressing myself to the school, surely, from this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never in nothing. Great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago. And to many countries it seemed that our account was closed and we were finished. And all this tradition of ours, our songs, our school history this part of the history of this country were gone and finished and liquidated. Very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across her slate. But instead, our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching and no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. You sang here a verse of a school song. You sang that extra verse written in my honor, which I was very greatly complimented by and which you have repeated today. But there is one word in it I want to alter. I wanted to do so last year, but I did not venture to. It is the line, not lest we praise in darker days. I have obtained the headmaster's permission to alter darker to sterner. Not lest we praise in sterner days, Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days of our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. His word saved a nation and saved a world. When he spoke of fighting them on the beaches and in France and in the farmlands and on the roads. And at the end of that message, England had nothing but words. And a man stirred a nation. One man. America entered in the war later. And it was this man, Winston Churchill, who saw the evil of of Hitler and he saw the evil of Stalin. 
He saw the evil of fascism. He saw the evil of communism. He saw the evil of socialism. He saw the power of words that there's truth and there's lies. And you fight in the realm of ideas to transform cultures. He stood and he was the first, I believe, to describe this idea of an iron curtain as he spoke in Missouri when he was an elder statesman after the war. To fight against the the ideas of communism. Why did he establish this? Well, there was a man who also had words. Listen to some of the things that he wrote. This was a poem that this man wrote. Alanum. Alanum. It's backwards for Emmanuel, but he just wrote Alanum. It was a poem that he wrote. He said, The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain till I go mad and my heart is utterly changed. See this sword? The prince of darkness sold it to me. For me beats the time and gives the signs ever more boldly I play the dance of death. He also wrote, I shall build my throne high overhead. I will ascend into heaven. There also, Alunem, Alunem, the name rings forth like death, rings forth until it dies away in a wretched crawl. Stop, I've got it now. It rises from my soul, yet I have power within my youthful arms to clench and crush you. And tempestuous force, while for us both the abyss yawns in darkness, and you will sink down, and I shall follow laughing, whispering in your ears, descend, come with me, my friend. He also wrote, interestingly enough, if there is something which devours, I'll leap within it, though I bring the world to ruins. The world which bulks between me and the abyss, I will smash to pieces with my enduring curses. It was Karl Marx who wrote these words. He taught a world to believe that God didn't exist. Yet he hated God and fought against him in his poetry when he was young. And his father pleaded with him. How can you fight against something that doesn't exist? He knew God existed. He just hated him. And he taught a world to deny him. And we think about this. People say, oh, Christianity Christianity is responsible for the greatest atrocities in the world. Really? Where'd you come up with that, you scholar? Oh, the the Crusades, the Inquisition, Salem witch trials. Really? Yes. How many died in the Inquisition? Millions, no. Over 100,000, far too many, but over 100,000. How many died in the Salem witch trials? Thousands. No, less than 50. And they were stopped by Christian preachers. How many died at the hands of communism? Billions. Billions. Words destroy. Even in the Inquisition, even in the Salem witch trials, The evil that was perpetrated had nothing to do with the word of God, nothing. It was under the guise of Christianity, but it was the absence of the truth of the words of Christianity. A wholesome tongue, the scripture says in Proverbs 15, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 16 says, 
An ungodly man digs up evil and is on his lips like a burning fire. Perverse man sows strife and a whisper separates the best of friends. A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in the way that is not good. And then the writer goes on to say, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 17 says, He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. I'm thankful for that. Out of your mouth can come words of death, bitter, strife, division. I, I was mindful of my words when I was in Israel. The very first message I gave at the Mount of Beatitudes. And it harkened back to another time when I was in El Salvador. I was in El Salvador with my, my pastor, Don McClure. And bless my wife, she is, if the Holy Spirit, who is speaking to my heart, and in my quest for humor, and humor is always going to get you to the edge, my wife has a a Holy Spirit-inspired member of her body, and it happens to be her foot. (laughs) And under the table, it always tends to reach me. And it's moved by the Spirit Himself. My shin has become numb to the things of the Lord. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) We were in El Salvador, and my pastor was there. And uh, we were surrounded with Christian leaders, and, and great work was taking place, and and there was humor, and, and I was having fun, and I, I had people laughing, and, and I was taking it as far as you could to the edge, and then over. Drove through with a Mack truck. I started to make light of Don McClure, my pastor. And, and as I was speaking of this, this man, in my heart, I had the dearest of respect for him. And it was, it was almost to me hyperbole that I was making light of, of my experience as an assistant pastor in San Jose living in a windowless apartment. And when the people above us would do their laundry the, or their dishes, the noodles would end up in our laundry downstairs. And, and how we had cockroaches in the facility and where we lived. And, and we ate food out of the food bank. And, I was, I, and people were moving away from me quickly as I'm, you know, laughter became uncomfortable and people started to step away from me. And my, my wife almost couldn't couldn't reach me from the distance she was keeping with her foot. And, and I didn't notice that I, and, and all of a sudden I just saw Don wasn't laughing. And I disrespected a man I deeply loved. And Michelle saw it. And what was missing was the comment and what needed to be added to the humor was everything that the Lord established in my life was done in San Jose through this man. And I needed to have that windowless apartment and I needed to live in those circumstances and I needed to be tested and proven in that way. And God used that man more mightily than any other human being on the earth in my life. And I love him. And there isn't anything I wouldn't do for him. And I respect him more than any living human being. But that wasn't put into the context of it. No one heard that. Don did later when I profusely apologized. But my tongue was devastating. 
And it harkened back to this last trip when we were at the Mount of Beatitudes. And, and I was thinking, how do I get this crowd together? What is a unifying principle of this crowd? I don't know any of these people. And I thought, one thing they all have in common is David Lane. And I said, there's preachers here that are better preachers than I am. And there's teachers and more knowledgeable than me. But I have been given the, 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 the call to preach at each of these sites. Simply, my qualifications is that I am David Lane's pastor. And as all of you know, that is a great challenge. And they all giggled. But it was an insult to a man who's one of the most generous people you can imagine. I laid awake that night thinking about it, and I wanted to make sure that at another site I, I clarified and didn't miss the opportunity that I had missed with Don McClure to clarify that. You see, it's not funny if it's at someone else's expense. The tongue is deadly, it's awful. It can create life and it create death. And God wants us to use it wisely. Words change the world. They change the world. I would say in this passage of scripture, uh, limited with time that we have, I, I wanted to point out that it says this idea that no man, verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Let me repeat that and listen. No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. I mean, we can create Shamu, this enormous killer whale to jump and do things for little fish. We can have elephants carry things and you can move them with a stick and they, they do whatever you want. You can control lions. But you don't control your tongue. It's a deadly poison. And it says, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? No. It's either bitter or it's sweet. And when the scripture declares and makes it very clear that no man can tame the tongue, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison, bitter poison, I hearken back and I close with Exodus chapter 15. Moses was leading God's people. And Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Water is life. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. They were poisonous. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And so he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. What is the point? The point is, your tongue and my tongue are weapons of death. And in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. I am capable of tearing you apart with my tongue, as you are with me. I can curse a man I love. With my tongue. I can hurt my wife with my tongue. I don't need a gun to kill my children. My tongue will do just fine. And so will yours. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. We, we are filled with poison and our tongue is the stinger. The wasp's stinger. How do we cure this? 
the tree needs to go into the bitter water. The tree. You see, this was a typology of Christ in Exodus 15. They came to this place. They had no water for three days. They were dying. They were parched. They were thirsty. People come to this place because their souls are dry and they're dying spiritually. And they come to be refreshed. And you've had a hard day and you were up late last night. And you've been given a ministry opportunity with the children. And they bring their children in. And their children haven't, you know, their diapers haven't been changed, but they want to hurry and get to service. And they leave the child with you with a big full load. And, and you, you say something snippy. And poison proceeds. And you're not a servant. You're a viper. And you're venomous. You, you, you make a comment to the person next to them and you say, oh, can you believe that they would, they would do this? And you're fanning it into a flame and it burns and it devours them. And they're mocked and ridiculed. They don't ever want to come back. You speak of your neighbor that way. You speak of your family and you devour and, and consume it with a fire of bitterness and poison. Hold your tongue. These things ought not to be so. They come to the well, they need to drink. And the water is poisoned in your life. The only remedy is the cross of Christ. You die. Jesus lives and makes the water sweet. And they can drink from your life. And that's the application. Brothers, sisters, these things ought not to be so. Put the cross in the water. Make the poisonous water sweet. That all can drink from your life. And not be afraid of you fanning into flame. You're devouring words of deceit and anger. And misery and division and strife and envy. Those die. We're Christians. We're different. Hold your tongue, Christian. Let the cross of Christ make the waters of your soul sweet to drink. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you have given us the cross of Christ to make the deadly poison of our tongue sweet. That from our heart will flow living water and our tongue would declare that to be so. That we would speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual praises, making melody in our heart one to another. I'm mindful as the music's playing. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I, I was thinking about this passage, and we've got time. I want to do this with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I was thinking about this passage where Jesus said, or the Word says, that if you believe in your heart and then confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You'll be made alive in Christ. Because the reality is your heart has been established to say Jesus is my Savior. And from the overflow of that joy, you say He is my Savior. And you, you, you declare that to be true. If you want your life to be sweet, you want people to drink from the well of your life and be satiated and touched and blessed, 
and you know your mouth to be a poisonous, viperous sting and you want it to be remedied this day, you must come to the cross and find salvation for your soul. And Jesus said, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus wants to put the cross of Christ into the cesspool of the poisonous well of your life and make it sweet for others to drink. He wants to make you a servant. He wants to save you. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, as your head's bowed and your eyes are closed, would you profess Him now by raising your hand? Just raise your hand. No one's watching but the Lord. God bless you. Anyone else? The lights are low. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Father, thank you for those who have responded. I ask your blessing upon their lives. I thank you that they've come to receive you this day. And and Lord, now I just speak to believers. We recognize that our, our soul is bitter and our words are poisonous. And this ought not to be so. And so we ask that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Establish our heart in you that our mouth would declare it to be true. And so, Lord, we thank you. Bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's clap for those folks.